Philippians chapter 4, and we are in week 2 of our three-week series. Uh, he's, still, he's still got the whole world in his hands, amen? And uh, there is no greater foundation that we can build our life upon than the foundation that is Jesus Christ. Um, and I, I got to just be honest, when I was standing over singing that song, and, and there's that line, I will put my trust in you alone. Uh, that, that, it hit me in that moment that the first time I sang that, as we were singing it together, that, man, Lord, I really pray this is not just words I'm singing on a screen. Uh, it's so easy to do that. It's so easy to just sing the words and um, maybe even in church think that we really are doing that. Uh, we would say, oh, yeah, of course I'm putting my trust in Christ alone. Uh, but I think we find out where we really put our trust when things are taken from us, uh, when other things that we think are secure are not secure. And so I pray that it's not just words on a screen. Uh, I pray that you really genuinely, truly have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And if you feel your faith and trust in him wavering, I pray that you would know that there is an opportunity to turn from that, to renew that trust and faith in him, and to believe that you can put your faith in him alone. I pray that everyone's had a great 4th of July and had a great holiday yesterday with family, friends, or whatever you did to celebrate. Um, just curious, how many of you uh, bought your own fireworks? I'm not, like, so we're talking about, like, above sparklers, okay? Um, like, things that actually left the ground, okay? Um, bought your own fireworks yesterday and, and ignited those. And there's, there's no police involved. There's no one that's going to report you. I'm just curious. Raise your hand, anyone? Okay, a couple people here. This whole little section. Wow, that's like the fireworks section over here. Okay, okay. I know uh, I saw on Facebook, uh, Wesley and Emily had their own little firework of a kind, I would say. Uh, a pink one, if I remember right. And so praise the Lord for that. Yes, they're having a little girl. And so um, uh, Grandpa Steve's going to have a lot of work on his hands in a few years. You know, when all these little girls become 14, 15, 16. I just see a lot of ammunition being purchased in his future. Uh, it's going to be great. Uh, but no, uh, you know, it was kind of cool. Uh, obviously, some places weren't doing fireworks like normal, but uh, I don't know. It was probably about quarter to 10 or something. Sandra, we were sitting in the, I was sitting in the living room, and Sandra came in, and people were starting to, you know, and people have been doing it for a few days, but it was really obviously starting to take off at that time. And all around where we live on M21, uh, just outside, just right in Emily City there, kind of. And, and so she comes in, she's like, I got an idea. Let's just jump in the van, and we'll just drive around like Emily City, and just watch the fireworks. That'd be kind of fun. And I was like, sure. I, I was enjoying sitting in my chair at 10 o'clock at night and just, you know, kind of vegging. But that's a great idea. Let's do that. Let's just go jump in the van. So, uh, no, it really was a cool idea. So we jump in the van. And uh, we drove around, like, downtown a little bit. And we were like, of course, it's like, you know, there's a tree. And then you see, like, the top of the firework. And then we found this, the parking lot by um, the VFW right there on Fairgrounds and 21, where Elmont kind of crosses over 21 into Fairgrounds. There's a little parking lot right there. I think there's a newspaper place there. And we parked right there. And I'm not kidding you. Like, one, two, three, four, four different places right around there. We're launching them off. And it was so hilarious. Like we got, we're in the van and the boys put some of the seats down and they're like literally going from like window to window. Like just, wait, one's over here. And they're over here. Oh, that's so cool. Look over here. Okay. And there was a family or maybe multiple families. I don't know that in one yard, I'm not kidding you, like 30 minutes off and on for 30 minutes, this one family or one group of whatever, we're launching them off. And you know what I kept thinking? The boys are like, this is really cool. What's every adult thinking right now? That's a lot of money in fireworks, man. I can, Sandra said she saw that in Michigan, someone spent $1,300 
on stuff you blow up for seconds. Like, it's just, nothing says America more like that, I guess, you know. Let's just spend 1300 on the blowing some stuff up. It's going to be great. We're going to eat bacon, too, at the same time, just because we can, okay. No, it, so it was really cool. I hope you guys found somewhere to, like, maybe enjoy some fireworks, either yourselves and in your own family, or maybe you drove around, too. Um, it was kind of funny, though. I let my dog out about a, an hour after we got home. And I looked out in the back part of my yard. There's these apartments and stuff, and there's a tree line over them. And I'm not kidding you. There was, like, the moon was so bright last night. Did you guys see the moon last night? That was awesome. Um, There was, like, a haze. I could barely see the trees, the defining of the trees, because there was, like, this haze from all the smoke, from all the fireworks. And so I was like, well, this is what it's like to live in Los Angeles. I kind of see this smog everywhere. It's great. So, uh, but no, hopefully you guys had a great fourth. Um, I know we did some ribs on the grill. It was really good. And uh, some cooked asparagus on the grill, which was really good. And so anyone hungry yet? Okay, I'm, I'm already hungry. Um, there you go. Amen. Um, there's no ribs left, though. There's, no, there's like a rib. I think there's one singular rib left in the fridge. So, um, But anyway, no, I, I do pray that you had a great fourth, that you enjoyed some time with family and friends. Pray for so many in our church that are either uh, camping this weekend with family, traveling, uh, maybe so many heading back home. So if you know someone traveling, please be praying for them. And I pray that you guys have had a great fourth already. And so uh, Philippians chapter 4 is where we're going to be in just a moment. And uh, we are, like I said, in the second week of our series. Uh, He's still got the whole world in his hands. And uh, I want to kind of share a couple things as a little bit of a review from last week. And then we'll get into Philippians chapter 4 and some new stuff. And so uh, the title of the message this morning is Pray Until Peace Comes. Pray Until Peace Comes. Uh, as we talked about last week, and if you missed last week, you can hear that on the website, you can hear that on the app, um, the first week of this series. Uh, uncertainty is God's favorite environment. Uncertainty is God's favorite environment. It seems that's when he gets the most accomplished. Uncertainty creates fear and insecurity in us, not God. Okay, let me say that again, because some of us, we really need to kind of get a hold of this and realize it's okay to have a little bit of fear, a little bit of insecurity, as long as we realize we're taking that to him and not trying to handle it ourselves. Uncertainty creates fear and insecurity in us naturally, but it does not change or shake God. When there's that time of uncertainty, it is when he, God, gets an individual's undivided attention. Isn't that true? That when we're going through a time of uncertainty, God can get our undivided attention attention individually. It is also when God gets a nation's undivided attention. So many times, so many nations throughout the world during times of uncertainty have turned to a time of prayer or a time of looking to God, even though that nation may be far from God. There's still this innate desire to say, I'm going to look towards God, even as a nation. I will never forget when 9-11 took place. And I remember in the days following, you see people standing on the steps of the Capitol building singing God Bless America. Prayer services were happening. People were calling out to God. When times of uncertainty hit, people tend to repent of their sin. They realize their wayward doings and they turn from that. When uncertainty hits, values are reshuffled. What's important shoots to the top of our priority list. Isn't that true? And all of a sudden, in a time of uncertainty, our priorities, this thing that we thought were so needed, we realize that's not as needed as I thought. These are, our priorities are shuffled about. We feel our deepest dependence on God and each other. 
we start to realize that I need God and I need others in my life. So let me just ask you a question. You don't have to answer with an example, but just raise your hand. How many of you would say you found or returned to your faith at some point in your life during a difficult period? You found faith for the very first time, or you return to an understanding of faith in your life personally during a difficult time in your life, would you raise your hand? Anyone like that this morning? Okay, take, keep your hand up. Keep your hand up for a second if you raise your hand. Look around the room just for a minute, guys. Man, what does that tell you? There's two things that tells you. All of us have gone through difficult times, right? You know what the enemy tells you when you're going through a difficult time individually? No one will understand. Keep it to yourself. Don't tell anyone. God doesn't understand. God's going to look down on you if you open up and say, God, I'm scared. God, I don't know what's happening. God, I don't know what to do. But those that just raise their hands are evidence that that's not true. You know what else that's evidence of? That when we call out to him in a time of need, he restores our faith. He strengthens our faith if we will open our hearts and minds to him. If we'll say, God, I can't handle this. I know I can't handle it. I need you to handle it. Then he strengthens our faith. What does Paul say? That in my weakness, then am I made strong. The truth is you are not alone in times of difficulty or uncertainty. As we said last week, the Bible is filled with stories of how God moved among tremendous times of uncertainty. The Bible is not filled with feel-good stories of everything always going perfectly according to plan. I'm sure none of us would want that, right? Nobody in here ever wants it to always go according to plan perfectly, right? We're we're happy when things go sideways. We're happy when the unexpected takes place. And of course, naturally, we somehow think it's always going to go perfectly according to plan. We say things like, God, why are they being blessed and I'm not? I'm doing this and that for you. God, I'm a good person. Why aren't you working it out for me? You know what we need to go back to? That on-demand God talk we had a few months ago. That God is not an on-demand God. Things will not go according to plan. But here's the crazy thing. You know what's crazy to me about that? This book never suggests, even in the slightest, that this side of heaven, everything will go according to plan. When, when people tell me, well, shouldn't it just work out? I mean, I'm going to church. I'm praying. I'm giving an offering, which you can give offerings. That's always accepted here, okay? If you forgot to do that, just pull your phone out. You can give right now, okay? But anyway, that's just a little plug. If you want to get, I'm just saying, you know, we always take them 24-7, okay? But God, I'm doing all this stuff. Why is it always working? Why isn't it working out for me? What that tells me is that that person hasn't really spent quality time in the Word of God. Hasn't really invested time in the Word of God and reading story after story. Just, just peruse the Old Testament, <laughs> And find story after story about people who were doing the right thing, but yet went through an uncertain and difficult time. Greatest example I can think of. You ready? Joseph. Was a, was a great son. Father says, go take your brother some, some needed things. He shows up. What do they do? Hey, here's a pit. Let's throw him in that. From the pit, what does he hear his brothers talking about? Should we kill him or sell him as a slave? I just really don't know which way to go here. We know he gets sold into slavery. What ends up happening? He ends up ending up as a second-in-command in in this household. He's he's leading a house. The wife of this Potiphar says, he's pretty cute. She tries to make some moves on him. He does the right thing. Get that now. By the way, part of that story that I'm always blown away with, it says, there was no one else in the house. But he chose to do the right thing. And yet what happens? He ends up in prison because of it. Person after person, oh, you know what? I'll tell Pharaoh about you. Yeah, they forgot. Oh, man, you're amazing. I'll tell Pharaoh about you. They forgot. 
And then finally, God rewards Joseph and blesses him. But you know what's amazing is Joseph remained faithful long before any blessing ever came. So here's the thing. No matter what Bible story you want to think of, there's a time of difficulty, uncertainty, confusion. There's all these things wrapped up in the word of God. And that's a good thing because it tells us that God can work and will work in those moments. Rather, the Bible is not a book full of good stories of everything always working out perfectly according to plan. It's filled with stories of real people experiencing real life and its struggles and yet seeing God's hand move. This morning, I want us to realize that because he has the whole world in his hands, we can pray until peace comes. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4. Now, we looked at this passage way back. Some of you might remember. I'm sure everybody watched the online services, right? We all watched the online services. Okay, silence. All right. No amens, no hallelujahs. That's encouraging. Okay, TJ, man, we, you put the work. I appreciated it, man. I appreciate all the hours. So, so way back when this kind of stuff started coming down, one of the first messages we did online was dealing with this idea of Philippians 4 and rejoice in the Lord always. Look at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. What's the condition for my rejoicing? When can I not rejoice? What's the biblical condition that says until this or accept that? Is there one? What's Paul say? Rejoice in the Lord So when can I not rejoice in the Lord? When it's no longer always, right? When always ceases to be, there's no condition. It doesn't say rejoice in the Lord always until you lose your job. Rejoice in the Lord always until you lose a loved one. Rejoice in the Lord always until this doesn't work out or that doesn't work out. Rejoice in the Lord always until that person that you wanted to get in office doesn't get in office. Look, it's not me. I, I don't come up with this. This is the word of God. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And then he says this. And again, I love that. I say rejoice. I'm going to ask that we would pray and ask God to speak to us this morning. And then we're going to unpack this a little bit more. Father, we need you this morning. We need to hear from you, not man. And I pray that as only you can, that you would fill me with your spirit. That the words that I would say would be the words of God. That it would not be my opinion but it would be words that have been instructed by your word, thoughts that have, been, that have been led by the Spirit. But Lord, if there's anything, anything at all that would hinder your moving, I pray that you would remove it. I pray that our hearts and minds as the body of Christ would be open to receive what you have for us because Lord, we live in a world that is full of people that are dealing with uncertainty and we have the answer, we have the hope. And I'm so thankful that when we are asked about that hope, we can give an answer. We can share what you're doing, not just in our lives, but how you've moved throughout the world. Father, speak now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me give you some background on this verse. Really simple verse. Right? I mean, many of us heard this in Sunday school, junior church, VBS. We memorized it. Uh, if you're not really like good at or used to memorizing scripture, these are the verses that I encourage people to memorize because they're short, they're kind of repetitive, and they're easier to memorize. Philippians 4, 4, that's, it's kind of easy to remember. It's not like I'm asking you to memorize like Ephesians 3, 26. Like those numbers don't naturally seem to go together. But Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. We can memorize that. I would encourage you to do this. If you're a person right now that you're just battling with some feelings of anxiety, some feelings of stress, 
maybe because of whatever's going on in the world, or maybe it has nothing to do with what's going on in the world. It's just completely just something you're battling with at work or in your own health or whatever. What I tend to do is, is I get a, a dry erase, like a marker you can write on a mirror with, and write that right on your bathroom mirror, that verse. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Put it on a three-by-five card. Put it in your vehicle somewhere. I'm telling you, the Word of God will, will remind us by the work of the Holy Spirit that we don't have to stress. We can rejoice. Amen? And so maybe you would do that this week. Maybe if you're battling with this, maybe if you feel yourself kind of drifting into this negative thinking, and I'm not talking about just positive thinking, I'm talking about changing our perspective to a Christ-centered thinking, then we need to realize that not only should we rejoice always, we can rejoice always in Christ. So let me give you some background on what's being talked about here in Paul's life. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church at Philippi. That's this group of Philippians. Uh, This is not from the island of the Philippines. That's a whole different section. Uh, This is a group called uh, Philippi in the city of Philippi. And Paul's writing this uh, to this church, this letter. Uh, This is written from Rome. He's in Rome when he's writing this. And the church at Philippi is considered one of the first churches in Europe. And as Paul's writing this letter, he's encouraging them. He's sharing some challenging but some very loving things with them. And I want you to realize what happens in Paul's life during this time. I mentioned Paul was in Rome. Uh, Does anyone know why he was in Rome when he was writing this letter? Because he was arrested, right? He was under arrest for his faith. He was arrested in Jerusalem. uh, But because he was a Roman citizen, he is taken to Rome to see the emperor. Uh, This would be Emperor Nero. On the way, he is shipwrecked and spends three months on the island of Malta before finally arriving in Rome. When he gets to Rome, he's in prison for roughly two years. Then he is taken outside the city and martyred for the faith around uh, A.D. 61 to 66. So think about this for a moment. He's in Jerusalem. He's doing what God has called him to do. I mean, he is the greatest Christian missionary. He is arrested for his faith. He is taken to Rome on the way, shipwrecked. Okay? Never been in one, but it's reading an Acts. It's not a pleasant experience. He's stranded on this island for three months. By the way, this was not like Hawaii. Okay, this was not vacation time. This is stranded on an island. Okay, he didn't have the resources that he would need. And yet, isn't it interesting? What does Paul tell us? I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Sitting at a banquet hall, enjoying a feast, stranded on an island for three months. I'm content in Christ. And this is the Apostle Paul. Then he gets to Rome. Well, what happens when he gets to Rome? He's in prison for two years. While he's in prison, he's writing this letter. So he's leading up to his martyrdom. And then what does he say? Imagine going through just some of what Paul went through. Arrested for doing the right thing. Stranded on an island. Shipwrecked. Waiting your death for Christ. And the words you write to this church is rejoice in the Lord always. And it's crazy to me that this does not make human sense. This is not how human beings would respond apart from the inworking of Christ. Let me ask you a question. You don't need to answer out loud. You don't need to raise your hand. Is that what you would say? If you went through what Paul went through and you're sitting in a Roman prison and you're just waiting for your, you're a Roman citizen, you led people to be arrested and martyred. You know what's coming. Paul was not surprised when he was beheaded. He knew what was coming. Romans couldn't be crucified. That was too low of a penalty for them. So they were taken outside the city of Rome and usually beheaded if they were uh, executed. So Paul knows. He's, he knows exactly what's coming. 
In fact, he says in 2 Timothy, I am ready to be poured out as a drink offering for the Lord. That's what he says. Culture says that when they would behead the person, they would turn them upside down and let all the blood run out. So that's kind of gross for us, but here's the point. Paul knew that was coming. He says to Timothy, hey, I'm ready to be poured out as a drink offering. He saw his very blood pouring out on the ground was an offering to the Lord to say, I I will give you everything. So can I ask real quick here? We sang that line a few minutes ago, I put my trust in you alone. So my challenge to us is, do we really? I mean, do we really put this kind of trust in the Lord? If I'm being honest, I think most Christians in America would struggle to say, rejoice in the Lord always after going through what Paul went through. To be honest, most American Christians find it hard to do this when the Wi-Fi goes down. We find it hard to do this when our satellite quits working or our neighbor plays their music too loud or someone at work is rude to us or dares to say makes fun of us for being a Christian. We find it hard to rejoice when our boss doesn't acknowledge my hard work, when my wife or my husband says or does something that I don't like or agree with. When this or that political thing happens in our country, we find it hard to even rejoice in those things. Imagine being arrested, shipwrecked, awaiting martyrdom, and saying, rejoice in the Lord always. See, it's easy to say now, but it's hard to say when we're going through it. It's so easy to choose not to rejoice as human beings, if we're being honest. Because what do we, as human beings, what do we base our joy in? We base our joy in our circumstances, naturally speaking. As long as all of this works out, then I'll have joy. But what is Paul saying? No, no, no. Rejoice in the Lord. That's a little catch. We can't forget that part. He doesn't just say rejoice. He says rejoice in the Lord. That means when your circumstances are not going the way you want, we can still rejoice. Why? Because I'm not rejoicing in my circumstances. I'm rejoicing in the Lord. So when things become uncertain, we remain joyful in the Lord. I want to encourage you, if you're taking notes, write that down. And maybe someone here needs to write that down because maybe you're, you're battling in this area. When things become uncertain, we remain joyful in the Lord. We, by God's grace and the word of God through the Spirit's equipping, determine that no matter what circumstances occur, nothing will steal my joy in the Lord. We must not allow the cares of the world to push us back and forth as though we have no footing on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. Now, we tend to think of the cares of the world as merely possessions or finances, worldly success, That's what we think the cares of the world tends to mean. That's part of it. That whether or not I'm successful in the world's eyes or have enough money, which, by the way, there's no security in your finances. Just ask all those people from 2008 who thought they had a lot of security in their finances until they didn't. The cares of the world are not just possessions, finances, and worldly success. The cares of the world can mean when I, as a citizen of heaven, merely passing through, amen, Any citizens of heaven excited you're just passing through? There'll be a day where you will step from this world into your real home. Some of you aren't as excited about that as others. I pray that you'll get excited about it because there is no greater joy for the believer than to leave this miserable planet with all of its sin and corruption and step before my Savior and see the wounds that he took for me. And there's no greater joy. There's nothing in this world that compares there's great blessings in this world, don't get me wrong. When I say miserable world, I don't mean there's not joys and blessings. I mean miserable because of sin and corruption and violence and hatred and all these other things. 
There are great blessings in this world, but listen, nothing we experience that's good in this world can even hold a candle to the good in his presence, in his heaven. The cares of the world can mean when I, as a citizen of heaven, merely passing through, allow my mind to be filled with the fears, concerns, worries, or stresses of this present world. See, I can allow the cares of the world to control me, not just in the finances and the possessions and the worldly success, but when I allow the fears and stress and concerns and cares of the world to consume me as a, heaven, as a citizen of heaven, when I, as a follower of Christ, allow those things to take over my mind, then I am drifting into the cares of the world. I am no longer centered in the reality of who Jesus Christ is. But that's the beauty of a verse we looked at this last Sunday evening. We've been studying the book of Romans. We're in chapter 12 on Sunday evenings. Let me just say, if you've never been to a Sunday evening service or you're interested, we would love to have you tonight at 6 o'clock. We are having service as normal. What we referenced last Sunday night, Romans 12, 2, as we're opening up chapter 12. And Romans 12, 2 most famously says, Be not conformed to this world. Be not conformed to this world. That implies that I must not allow my mind to think like or be driven by the same things the world is driven with, but allow the Spirit of God to renew my mind that I may dwell on heavenly things. So what are heavenly things? Well, in Philippians chapter 4, you're already there, verse 8, we get a little glimpse of what we're supposed to be thinking about. And so here's what I would encourage you to do. In my own life, I try to do this not as consistently as I should, not as constantly as I should, not as well as I should. But when I think of this, when the Lord leads me this way, I try to dwell on this verse. Because if you want to do a little mind check, by the way, this is the filter we should put our thoughts through. Whatever doesn't make it through the filter doesn't need to be thought about. That's the reality. And whatever doesn't make it through the filter doesn't need to be thought about and definitely shouldn't be shared. Verse 8. Finally, my brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. It's not a coincidence that that verse follows the verses we're going to look at regarding prayer. When we're in a prayerful attitude and a prayerful mindset with Christ, then our thoughts will naturally or rather maybe supernaturally be cleansed to the point of being thoughts we should be dwelling on. But when I allow the world's stresses to stress me out and to concern me and to cause me fear and worry where I can't sleep at night, then I'm not allowing the Spirit of God to renew my thinking. I'm, I'm, I'm dwelling in the world's way of thinking. And we don't have to live there. One author said it this way, and I love this. Reflect on God's goodness and mercy in your life until your emotions catch up with that reality. Reflect on God's goodness and mercy in your life until your emotions catch up with that reality. To be honest, this is why we sing on Sunday mornings. You know we don't sing on Sunday mornings to impress the people leading us in singing, right? Okay? You know you don't sing on Sunday mornings to impress the people near you, right? You know you don't sing, hey, hey, amen, Vic, amen. Okay? Unfortunately, my wife has to stand near me every time I sing, and I always feel bad for her because she's hearing that every Sunday morning. Somehow she worships through it. She's just a godly woman. I don't know how she does it. But, but we don't, why do we worship? Why do we sing praises to our God? Because he's worthy. And this is the thing. He's worthy no matter what I go through. 
And I wonder sometimes, I wonder sometimes if our worship externally really just reflects our internal worship at the lack thereof. That when I'm hesitant to sing praises to him, and I know some people are like, well, I'm just not a singer. I'm just not a, a you know, that kind of person. Well, that's fine. I'm not saying, but, but our expression of worship, maybe it's not singing loud or whatever, but is, is, it, is, it, is it an expression of our heart before him? And if my external worship is lacking, maybe my internal worship is lacking. Maybe I'm not really where I need to be in my personal life with the Lord. So therefore, this expression is just kind of like a ho-hum. Yeah, okay, I'll sing because they're making me. I'll stand up and sing because everyone else is doing it. Man, do you, do you realize that when we express praise to him in song, that it's greater to him than all the angels singing praises to him? That the song of the redeemed is the greatest worship song he could hear? By the way, it doesn't matter if it's a hymn or contemporary. That's irrelevant to our Savior. <laughs> he doesn't concern himself with such minor little things like we do. He sees the heart. Now, are we expressing worship to him as an expression of our love for him? Not because our circumstances are good or we think he's worthy, but because he is worthy. This is why we sing on Sunday mornings. This is why we cheer at baptisms. I was so blessed this last Sunday to be able to talk to a family about possibly seeing when they want to be baptized. How amazing is that to get with someone and say, I, wanna, you know, I just want to express to everyone my faith in Christ. There's no greater joy than watching someone enter the baptismal waters and arise in the newness of life, the Bible says. Expressing that joy. We cheer for them. Why do we cheer for them? Because God is good. And he's redeemed them. And we're excited for them. So, just so you know, you're allowed to rejoice at home. You're allowed to rejoice in your car. You're allowed to rejoice in at work, we're allowed to rejoice wherever we find ourselves, to detach your emotions from your surroundings and bend them in the direction of God's mercy and grace in your life. No matter what you and I go through, his mercy and grace are ever present so we can always praise. No matter what your day at work's going like, his mercy and grace is still there so you can still praise. And I wonder how many of us really honestly believe our God is this worthy. So when we go through uncertain times, we rejoice and we remain joyful in the Lord. But also, we remain joyful in the Lord during uncertain times to set an example for others. To set an example for others. Look at verse 5 of Philippians 4. This is only the second point of the first point in my outline. And it is 1145, so... Um, we're just going to see where we go, okay? So hold on. Verse 5. I would say buckle up, but you don't have seatbelts. We should put those in. That would be hilarious. Okay, anyway. We'd only put them in the front row, though, so only the spiritual people can get them. Just kidding. Just kidding. Is there anyone in the back row? The webs are in the back. Okay, okay, yeah. I take it back then. The back row is pretty spiritual. Okay. Megan's in the back row, so it's spiritual. Verse 5. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. That phrase at the beginning of verse 5, let your moderation be known. Some of you may have a different translation that translates that a little differently. Uh, in studying for this, that phrase is very interesting to me. 
Some translations, English translations, and these aren't necessarily right or wrong. They're just the way the word was translated, and we'll explain why they got there. Uh, Some translations use the idea of graciousness for the word of moderation. Some use the idea of gentleness. Some would even use the phrase gentle spirits. Uh, The ESV, for example, uses the word even reasonable, while another uses the word forbearance. So it's interesting to see how this word moderation, depending on the English translation, how and what way they, they translated that word. But here's the thing. Do you hear the similarities here? Graciousness, gentleness, gentle spirit, reasonable, and forbearance. I think all of these connect to the core of the word. That we as believers, listen now, when facing uncertain and difficult times, we should show grace and gentleness to others, which is reasonable when we realize that nothing steals our joy. We should realize that when facing uncertain and difficult times, we can show grace and gentleness to others, which is reasonable when we realize nothing steals our joy. Matthew Arnold wrote it this way in an essay, let your sweet reasonableness be known. I love that. Let your sweet reasonableness be known. This doesn't mean we don't speak truth, but our truth is always flavored with love and grace. Why? So that it will build up the hearer and not tear down the hearer. The Apostle Paul says to all men as well, which includes both those in Christ, the church, as well as those far from Christ. He mentions this similar idea in Philippians 2 and verse 15. I'm just going to read it quickly. Philippians 2 and verse 15 says that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So who are we supposed to let our gentleness, our graciousness, our our reasonable understanding that nothing steals our joy so we can be at peace? Who should we be showing that to, displaying that to? He says, all men. Who are all men in the church and that those in that perverse and crooked nation? By the way, that tells me that in Paul's day, the nations were perverse and crooked. Nothing's changed. Why do we think that when things get bad today, we automatically say, well, it's never been like this before? I always think, go back to the days of Noah. You want to talk about a bad place to live and a bad time to live. God scoured the world and said, I got Noah and his family. That's it. They're the only ones that are walking in the understanding of what they should be doing. Paul says, no, 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 listen. Your lights shine whether you're in the church or out in the world. Gentleness and graciousness is not just for the believer-to-believer relationship, but it is for the believer-to-the-unbeliever. Obviously, we will not do this perfectly. Obviously, we will never fulfill this 100%. But when we realize our error or we realize we've sinned in some way, I think one of the ways that we can remain blameless and harmless is to own it, repent of it, be real about it, and turn from it. It doesn't mean be perfect all the time because none of us could do that. There's not one perfect person in this room. There's only one perfect man, and his name was Jesus Christ. He is the only one that was a perfect human being. 
When we choose to focus to, on the Lord in all circumstances, it's a change from an inward focus. And let's be honest for a second. When I'm in a difficult situation and I start focusing only inward on myself, what's that going to lead me to come to? It's going to lead to an increase of anxiety, right? Nobody spends time alone dwelling on their own stuff, kind of going inward, 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 and rejecting the word of God, not looking externally to him for help, but just going inward and ends up in a better place than when they started. We do that. What do we call those? We call those pity parties, right? Woe is me. Nobody does that and ends up feeling better at the end. What happened with Elijah? His pity party led him to running into the wilderness from a woman after he just saw God take out 450, I'm sorry, 450 plus another, what was it? 400 and some prophets? Like 800 and some prophets were wiped out by God? And yet one woman says, I'll take your life. And he runs for miles to hide. And he gets down on himself because he was looking this way. See, we don't look inward when we go through uncertain situations and difficult times. When we look inward, it only increases anxiety. But when we change our focus to an outward focus, first to the Lord and then to others by demonstrating graciousness, we find peace and the ability and the strength to move on. One more phrase in verse 5 I want to unpack quickly. The phrase at the end of verse 5 is so key says there, the Lord is at hand. Now this free phrase seems to carry two ideas with it, depending on who you study and what you listen to. Two main ideas that come from this phrase. Number one, that he is near and ready to help. Man, that's awesome. Where can you go not in the presence of God? Where is God not? Uh, he's always everywhere at all times. So where can you go where God can't be there to help you? The answer is nowhere. Everywhere you find yourself, he is there with you, present and willing and able to help. But then another way we look at this, the second phrase is that Christ is going to return soon and quickly, that he is coming again. So one idea is that he is ready to help. He's near, always ready to help, present in our time of need. But the other idea is that he is literally returning soon, coming again in the flesh. So when we think about these two ideas, what does that give us? That gives us a hope and a confidence, but also a motivation. One commentary, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary says it this way. The Lord's coming again speedily. I like that. The Lord is coming again speedily. He's coming at any moment. Is the grand motive to every Christian grace. So how can I be gracious and gentle to an unbeliever who is living in sin, different mindset, different thought life, just walking in rebellion from God? How can I possibly be gracious to someone like that in a time of uncertainty? It's easy when I realize I can't lose my joy because it comes from Christ and he is coming again. That is my motivation to be passionate that this person will come to Christ. Let me just say this. The, Jesus said it this way, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul, right? Strength, everything that is you, love the Lord, right? Is that the greatest commandment? What's the second? It's like the first to do what? Love your, as your, man, I, 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 we've said it before. We can't do the second without the first. I can't love my neighbor as myself if I'm not totally submitted and surrendered to God's love for me and my love for him. But loving your neighbor as yourself isn't just about preaching the gospel to them. That's the greatest way we can show love to them. But what did Jesus say with the story of the Good Samaritan? How was, how was the Good Samaritan, or the man, the, the Samaritan that helped the, the guy that fell among thieves, how was he a good neighbor? Because he cared for him, right? 
He took care of his need. He took care of him even financially, paid for his room to be able to take, take care of that. And he said, hey, if there's anything he owes you when all is said and done, I'll, I'll take care of it when I come back through. See, it's not just about preaching Christ to someone. That's, that's hugely important, and we must do that. But loving your neighbor as yourself means just caring for them, ministering to them when they're in need. And we all live in a community right now that are full of people that are in need of ministry. They're all in need. I've talked to a few people that are just genuinely believers, trusting in the Lord, but also equally confused. I just don't know what to do, Pastor. Man, I, just, I, just, I think I know what to do, but I'm not sure. Do you know there's tons of people that are like that in your life right now? And I just want to be real for a minute. We can say one thing, but we better do what we say as much as we can by God's grace. And when we don't, we need to repent and turn from that. Man, the greatest thing we can do to love our neighbors ourselves is to share Christ with them. But we need to make sure we're ministering to them as, as well. I was, I was torn whether I was going to mention this or not, but I'm going to. And I don't know the details, but I'll just share you what I heard. And I don't want you to take this at any way personal. I haven't even had a chance to talk to the people involved. But I just heard from someone that, that someone made a comment to someone in a church service who chose to wear a mask made a joking comment to them. I believe it was a joking comment. But that person took it more than a joke. I said day one, May 17th, we opened our church, and I said, whatever you decide to do in that area, you have complete freedom to do. That we as a church will in no way, shape, or form condemn or judge anyone who makes a decision to wear a mask or not wear a mask. That is, we're not going to require it. But if you want to do that for you and your family, that is your decision. We will in no way judge you. I said that believing that that was an accurate reflection of our church. And then I find out a few weeks later that somebody basically made a comment that came across judgmental to someone about that. And you might say, oh, that was just silly. It was a joke. Obviously, they didn't take it as a joke. Because they actually made a comment to someone else and said, yeah, someone said something to me about it. Now, I'm not mad. I'm not upset. I'm not bothered by that. I'm not judging anyone. I'm just saying this. I guess it just kind of hit me where I, I really hope that we can move past that as believers. Because at the end of the day, I could care less what someone has on their face when they come in this building. I just want them here. I want them here. You know why? Because this is the power to change lives, and I want them to be exposed to this. So I could care less whether they have a face covering on or not. And I'm just going to tell you, if that's a concern of yours or that's a high thing for you to where you feel like you need to make a comment to someone, that's not their problem. That's your problem. So I'm just going to tell you, as your pastor, I don't want to hear about it again. And I was really debating, Lord, do I even say anything on a Sunday morning? Like, is that Sunday morning okay? Because I'm telling you, it's, it's, it, just, it just bugged me. I mean, we have got people in our community that are dying and going to hell that are confused and hurting. And that's what we're going to come at them with? Guys, we better wake up. This book is pretty clear. There will come a time when he will return. The Lord is near. You can have your opinions, your ideologies, your, your I, I'm no way, shape, or form. I, I, I see both sides. I understand. I get it. I get it. I get it. And you're okay as an individual to have that freedom. And you can speak your mind. But man, please remember as a follower of Christ, we better make sure that we're, that we're showing that graciousness we need to show. Enjoy the Lord. Have a conversation. Yes. 
But man, make sure that people know your heart. So here's what I'm going to do this morning. I want to ask that we would pray. I'm going to ask that we would respond to what God is doing, that we would go from this place this week. And we didn't even get into the main part of the message this morning. But, but I just want to let you know, we're going to unpack this next week apparently, that you can pray and ask God to work in your life to where he will bring peace beyond understanding. And so maybe you're here this morning and you've been feeling that weight of the pressures of this world pull at your joy. Maybe you'd come this morning and say, Lord, I just want the joy. I, I want to be reminded that the joy cannot be taken away from me. Maybe you want to come this morning and say, Lord, I'm going to pray for my coworker by name as you pray here. I'm going to pray for, and you say their name, because I know they're battling right now. I know they're struggling, and I don't get why, because I have the Lord. I don't understand it, but man, Lord, I pray that you'd help me to understand them, that I can share Christ with them and minister to them and love on them, that I can speak truth in love. Father, I'm just going to come and pray for this community that we would see the churches in our community rise up and be those lighthouses that we need to be. And that we would just watch God do great things. Whatever God is doing, would you just respond to him as we pray? Father, thank you, Lord, so much for your grace in our lives. Lord, I pray that as only you can, that you would do a great work in our hearts and minds. Lord, I'm so thankful for your grace. I'm so thankful for your forgiveness. And when we realize that we have wandered away from what you would have us to, to be and to think, that we would just repent of that and turn back to you. Lord, I pray that we'd be conscious of the need in our culture and our community to share your gospel, yes, but to also put feet to your gospel. Maybe somebody in our area of influence is struggling right now financially because of all this. Pray that we would just minister to them as best we can. Maybe we can't solve their financial needs. Maybe we can't take care of them that way, Lord, as an individual. But maybe we can just pray with them, let them know we're praying for them. Father, I pray that you'd help us to have wisdom in this time, in this day and age as American Christians. Uh, Lord, I believe that there's a lot of confusion. I think we're blurring a lot of lines at times between what your word says and what our culture says. And I pray that we'd stand on your word. I pray that we would let our sweet reasonableness be known unto all men, that they would see the joy of the Lord in us, no matter the circumstance or situation. Father, help us to speak truth in love for your glory and your praise. We do all of this, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Would you stand to your feet this morning as these guys lead us in a song of invitation? Would you just respond to whatever God is doing? Would you come and pray if God is leading you to? Maybe there in your seats, you want to respond to what the Lord is doing. Maybe you want to just thank him for his grace in your life and the joy of the Lord that he has granted to you as we just celebrate all that God is. No matter where we find ourselves, we can have peace, the peace of Christ. Would you respond to what God is doing?